Yes, good morning again. And now we're going to come to hear God's word explained. We started the journey back in chapter 1 and verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so, Father, as we come to this word concerning your final word, your final self-revelation to a world that desperately needs to know you, and we hear the promise that the Lord Jesus is upholding the world by this word of his power, so we expect great things. We expect you to speak to us and address us and not leave us unchanged. And we expect you to work powerfully in us, to draw us more and more to your Son, who is the heir of all things, who is the exact imprint of your nature. Uh, for that is our highest good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, those are quite some commitments that people made a little bit earlier. I wonder if you were listening to them, if you weren't up here saying them. Do you confess your trust in God as your Father, in Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit as your Helper? Do you confess your sins, turn to them, turn from them to a life of holiness, putting your trust in the mercy of God in Christ Jesus? Uh, will you endeavor to depend upon divine grace, walk in God's ways, and pursue the glory of God in the practice uh, of your faith? Uh, they're big commitments. They're, they're fundamental, life-shaping commitments. They're, they're the commitments, commitments that anybody makes when you come to the Lord Jesus. It's not just because you've become members of Hope Central. It's because you're part of His body. You're part of the assembly of the firstborn gathered around Him. Uh, they're weighty commitments. They're not a wishful expression. Uh, you didn't respond, um, well, hopefully... You didn't respond, well, if there's nothing else better to do, or I feel like it at the moment, I might not in future. You said, I will. Uh, it's what you said if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus. I will. Uh, it is committing uh, wholeheartedly with all of your life to all of who Jesus is. Uh, and here's the question. If I asked you those questions in 10 years' time, or in 40 years' time, if you think you've got that long left in you, um, would you be able to say the same? Would you be able to express the same commitment? Now, some of you might think, well, yes, of course, um, I'll certainly have that same commitment. Others of you might say, well, I guess I don't know. How could I know for sure? And the challenging question that we've been asking in the series is, do you have it in you to complete the race of faith with Jesus? Uh, do you have the inner resources to make it to the end, holding on to Jesus until the day that you meet him? Uh, the Christian life is a race. Uh, chapter 12, verse 1, the writer says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Um, I think, Simon, don't worry about it. Simon. Don't worry. Don't. 
Don't worry, because otherwise it's going to be toilet. Okay, if it gets stuffy, then we'll go um, Let us lay aside every weight which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's a race, uh, and it's an endurance race. This is not your 5K jog around Pinelands. Uh, this is Darren's Ironman from last weekend, 113 grueling kilometers, 1.9 kilometer swim, 90 kilometer cycle, 21 kilometer run just to cap it off for dessert. Um, and as it was for him, the Christian race is a race that you have not run before. And it is a race that you will never run again. Uh, you get one shot at it. And the question is, have I got it in my legs to make it? Uh, Darren expected to have to fuss bait in the, in the last leg during the run, he had a knee issue. But actually halfway through the 90 kilometer cycle, um, all sorts of bits were just in pain and muscles were taking strain and people were dropping out around him. And so the question for us is whether you're at the start or whether you are decades into the Christian race, or even if you haven't yet started the race and you're sitting here this morning and you're contemplating what it would look like to start the race, do we have the resources to finish? When the race conditions deteriorate and the headwinds come in the form of the trials and the tests and the temptations, will we be those who shrink back and are destroyed? Or will we be those who have faith and preserve our souls? That's the question we've been grappling with. Hebrews has been a sermon. And so there in verse 22, we're told by the author, the writer, bear with my word of exhortation. That word exhortation has the sense of a sermon. It's the combination of theology truth about God with application, the right response to God. Uh, the theology has been all about who Jesus is. The application has been because of who Jesus is, listen to him and do not drift away from him. And this morning he finishes off with a prayer. It's a benediction. It's a prayer for blessing over the people that he's speaking to. And even in this prayer, there is that same combination of theology, truth about God, and application how we should respond to him and as he prays the benediction over them and over us two very very rich verses we will see where his confidence lies that Christians do have all of the resources they need to make it to the end and so firstly what he prays for it is a prayer for the equipping of his forever people looking at verse 21, uh, but starting at verse 20, and now may the God of peace, the, the God who brings peace, this is the God who he's praying to, the rest of verse 20 is the God who he's praying to, the one who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, and now the bit that he's praying for, that he would equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The prayer is that God, the God of peace, would equip them, equip us, with everything good in order to be able to do God's will. And then there's a parallel statement that he would work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. And the obvious question is, what is it to do his will? Uh, what is it that is to be pleasing in his sight. And the answer to both is, from Hebrews, uh, enduring faith 
in Christ Jesus. Enduring faith in Christ Jesus is what it is to do his will and what it is to be pleasing in his sight. Um, you can see that from uh, Hebrews 10 verse 36. Uh, here he says to them, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, there's that phrase, you may receive what is promised. A little while, the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we're not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith, which is those who do the will of God and preserve their souls. To do the will of God, according to the writer of Hebrews, is to live by faith. A word of pleasing God, well, it's the same answer. Chapter 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Uh, doing God's will, what is pleasing to God, is having enduring faith in his Son. Uh, we're not to leave salvation by faith. We're not to leave that behind and think that what we need to move on to in the Christian life is activism. No, we live by faith from start until finish. Trusting Jesus, going out the, outside the camp to Him, following the founder and the finisher of the faith, fixing our eyes on Him by faith. It'll always be tempting in the race to think God's done His part. He's given us free salvation by faith. And now I need to bring my side and get on with it. And the writer says, no, it keeps coming back to a life of faith. Faith that works out in action, certainly. But it is faith that pleases him. And the prayer is that God would equip Christians with everything good that they may do his will. Equip them with every good thing to hold on to Jesus by faith. That's the prayer. God, would you give them all that they need to hold on to you by faith? Uh, it doesn't tell us in this verse how he equips us, but throughout Hebrews he's been telling us. He's given us three macronutrients for faith. Now, the first is that uh, he grows us, he grows our faith through his word. I read just now uh, from the beginning of Hebrews. Jesus is God's final word. Well, chapter 2 verse 1 we must pay much closer attention to him to what we have heard and not drift away from it uh, Hebrews 12 verse 25 see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking the first macronutrient that grows our faith is his word uh, the second is his people his people are those who are there to sustain our faith and so chapter 10 you know these these are the lettuces uh, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another all the more as the day draws near. The second great resource, the second means of grace that God gives us, His Word, His people, and the third means of grace, because we saw surprisingly in chapter 12, is His discipline. His training, the things that he puts in our life to refine our faith and to build our muscles. Literally, it's the it's the training word. It's not the it's not the punishing word. It's the word that, by any means, taking away things we want and giving or giving us things that we don't want, he is training our faith onto him so that we know that he is sufficient. Those are the three macronutrients: word, prayer, 
sorry, word, people, and training. And we're to appropriate all three of those. We've been told to do that. We've been exhorted to do that. But the big concern of this prayer is, who are we depending on as we do it? It is a reminder not to rely on ourselves. And those are not three jobs to do. Those are three means of grace that he has given us, through which he is equipping us. Who do the verbs point to in verse 21? Uh, who, are the, who is the subject of the verbs, if you want to put it in grammatical terms? Uh, who does it fall onto to do the doing words? And the answer is God. Uh, he is the one being prayed to. He is the one equipping us with everything good. He is the one working in us that which pleases him. Where do you and I feature in that prayer for Christian? Well, we're the object. We're the one who is being worked on. You're the one being equipped by God. Here God says, let me give you everything that you need to continue my faith. But you're the one in whom he is working. Here God says, let me produce in you the faith that pleases me. The humble and uh, humbling and deeply reassuring point is that what God requires of us, he works in us. What does he require of us? He requires of us faith in the Lord Jesus. Enduring faith in the Lord Jesus is what will get us to the end. What does he work in us? Enduring faith in the Lord Jesus. Which is why what he prays for, which is verse 21, is completely and utterly linked to who the author prays to, which is verse 20. And our second point it is a prayer to the God of our forever shepherd, the Lord Jesus. Verse 20 is, is super concentrated, rich theology, a, a kind of concentrated form of all that he's been saying about Jesus in Hebrews so far. So if this is your first time, you've done well. You've come here for the executive summary. Uh, there's a bit of a surprise in there that we'll come to a bit later as well. Now, verse 20, now may the God... Of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you, and so on. The God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. He's speaking there about Jesus' resurrection. Literally, that word brought again means leading up from a lower to a higher place. And you remember the U shaped journey that we've been seeing develop all the way through Hebrews. Not this kind of view, sorry. It's a, it's a U-shaped journey. Uh, the journey of the eternal Son downward through the heavens to become the human Son, being made like His brother so that He could die for His brothers, so that we could also become sons. But then His upward journey as He is raised, as He ascends to the right hand of God, as He takes His seat with God on His throne, the enthroned son. It's, a, it's a, being, a, being brought again from the dead, resurrection, that is shorthand for Jesus being exalted to God's right hand, resurrected, ascended, reigning as God's forever king. But he's not just a forever king, he's also been described in detail as a forever priest. A, a priest who never needs to leave the presence of God to offer more sacrifices because he was the priest who on the basis of the perfect sacrifice, which was the basin of his own blood, entered into the holy places to sprinkle it clean, to make atonement for, for the place and for the people. 
to make the way open to God. And so on the basis of his perfect life and his indestructible life, a life that death could not defeat, that death could not hold, as a priest, he also is there at God's right hand, interceding for us, pointing to his wounds, asking God that he would supply everything that we need to make it to the end. Uh, it's, it's beautiful theological choreography, the U-shaped journey, and Jesus comes and he sits down. He is a forever king, seated and ruling. And, he, and as he sits there as king, he is sitting there as a forever priest, interceding and advocating. And both of those were promised in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 has been a, has been a go-to again and again and again. I've got references on your sheets there of places where the writer appeals to Psalm 110 to make the case for Jesus being the fulfillment of Psalm 110. And I'll just go to chapter 8 and verse 1 where he kind of summarizes the I love it when the author does this. Now the point of what we are saying is this. It's great, isn't it? Okay, I should probably listen. The paragraphs before I didn't really understand, but now the point of them is um, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We have a priest at the right hand of the king. And the writer's point is that because God has exalted Jesus, he's come down and he has taken him up. He's exalted him. He has raised him from the dead. He's completed that journey. Therefore, he is that Psalm 110, forever priest king, the one who is leading you the one who is protecting you, the one who is equipping you with everything you need to make it to the end. But the surprising part, and I wonder if you spotted it there in verse 20, is that he doesn't call him king or priest. He calls him shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep. It's the first time in Hebrews that he is called that. And so we have to ask ourselves, why is he switching it up? And here's my theory, and I wonder what you make of it. We can talk about it afterwards. The fact that he is king and priest, forever king and forever priest, is what qualifies him to be our great shepherd. You see, what is the role of a shepherd? It is to lead and to protect and to feed his sheep and to get them safely home. And there's a whole storyline of shepherds in the Bible about the need for that great powerful shepherd to lead the sheep. In Ezekiel 34, the indictment on the leaders of Israel is that you have failed as shepherds to do that. The leaders of God's people, the, the kings and priests of the day, had failed to shepherd Israel. Instead of feeding the people, they fed themselves. Instead of leading them, they left them vulnerable or they misled them. Instead of protecting them, they abused them. And God says two things. I will remove those shepherds and I will replace them. I will get rid of them. And I will replace him. I will send you a shepherd. And then with a tweak, he says, I myself will be your shepherd. All of that harking back to the psalm that we know, Psalm 23. It promises that the Lord is our shepherd, who will provide and protect. He will lead us to green pasture. We have nothing to fear because he is with us as we walk through the valley of the great enemy, death. And so it is to say, at the very at the least, it is a very loaded statement when Jesus arrives in John chapter 10 and says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of that whole storyline of failed kings and priests. And he adds in, 
very shockingly, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And so here's the theory, I don't think it's that contentious, that to be the good shepherd requires that Jesus be both the king and the priest. The king who leads, the priest who protects, in order to get us safely home, our forever promised future home with God. Uh, shepherd is not a lesser title, in fact it is an umbrella title for king and priest supporting it. The great threats to faith, your faith and mine, are sin and death. And the shepherd, because he is the king and the priest, he has dealt with both. And so we know his goodness and love will follow us all the days of our lives. We will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so here is how he is able to equip us with faith and to work in us faith. Because he is the one that we are journeying to. He is our destination. But he is also the one that we are journeying with. His rod of direction and rule as he leads us and his staff of protection are both strengthening us. He is the king who is strong and kind. He is the shepherd who is strong and sympathetic. As one of the hymns goes, the king of love my shepherd is, whose goodness fadeth never. I nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine forever. Never fading ruler of my heart, everlasting lover of my soul. How do we know God will equip us all with faith to endure? Because the God we're praying to sent us an eternal shepherd whose work is to lead and to protect and to provide and to get us safely home. The shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep stops at nothing to get us home. Who, when we are straying, will leave the 99 to seek you out. We really, really must stop believing that making it to the end ultimately falls on us. Which is what our last point drives home. It is a prayer for, it is a prayer to, and then thirdly, it is a prayer in terms of a forever covenant. And the other effect of Jesus' death and resurrection is not just that he is declared the eternal shepherd, it's that he's inaugurated an eternal covenant, covenant being the deal between God and man, the promises where, whereby relationship is sealed. Verse 20, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. And the contrast, here's your executive summary, the contrast all the way through Hebrews has been between the old covenants, which is obsolete and passing away, temporary, and the new covenant in Jesus. The old one's passing away because it is flawed. Uh, chapter 8 said there had to be a new one. That's precisely what Jeremiah the prophet had promised. Jeremiah 31 is quoted extensively in, in chapter 8. Uh, we needed a new one because the old one was flawed. And the reason the old one was flawed is it couldn't deliver the promises. And the reason it couldn't deliver the promises is that it never dealt with the problem of human sin. And therefore, as we said, it is a covenant for non-finishers of the race. But the new one did deal with sin. And therefore, it is the covenant to replace the temporary one fully and finally. It's a forever covenant. It has no expiry date. And it will never need to be superseded. There'll be no upgrade. Because it has done the job perfectly. And therefore, now we have a covenant sealed by the blood of Jesus, for finishes. Uh, because Hebrews tells us what it cost 
to inaugurate that covenant. It cost a perfect life and a perfect sacrifice. And therefore it cost nothing less than the blood of Jesus. Verse 20, the blood of the eternal covenant. That he had to die. And as he died, the new forever covenant, the new deal, relational deal between God and man began. One that would lead people to life. God's uh, pledge in that new covenant, um, that's been spelled out in Hebrews as well, it is eternal salvation. Salvation for relationship with him. It is eternal redemption from the slavery to sin that we lived under. And it is an eternal inheritance. Every blessing from God secure forever. And what makes it uh, forever and unspeakably superior to the old covenant is that God swears on the blood of his son that not only will he keep his side of the covenant, he will also keep our side as well. That beats the old covenant hands down. The old covenant says God will be faithful to his promises, but you need to be obedient. And that was where it was getting tripped up every single time without fail. And here in the new covenant, the reason we trust and have confidence that this is the one that lasts forever is because God keeps his side, his promise to save, and to redeem and to give us an inheritance. And he keeps our side. The obedience to the command to love God and love our neighbor. The perfect life of the Lord Jesus. And the demand for the punishment of sin. The perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And that is why this is a covenant for finishers. Uh, we know that we will receive what we are praying for. From the God that we are praying to on the basis of this covenant. We've asked the question, do you have the resources in you to finish the race, to endure, to keep going? I don't know how you're feeling about that today. I don't know how you respond in your heart and your mind when I ask you the question of 10 years time and 40 years time. Maybe you don't even know if you've got it in you to keep going till the end of this coming week. We don't know the headwinds that are going to come our way. We don't know those circumstances. We, we, we shouldn't feel right now that we have in us everything in our strength to get there because we don't. Jane Johnson uh, writes a song that I think is reaching out to those who are finding it unbearably hard to keep going. It's called You're Gonna Be Okay. It's a song that I, I appreciate. I know it's all you've got to just be strong and it's a fight just to keep it together. I know you think that you're too far gone, but hope is never lost. Hope is never lost. And so hold on. Don't let go. Hold on. Don't let go. Just take one step closer. Put one foot in front of the other. You'll get through this. Just follow the light in the darkness. You're going to be okay. It promises people in need of endurance that they have it in them. Remember, you're a fighter. You never know what tomorrow holds. You're stronger than you know. And so hold on, don't let go. And we need to be told that, don't we? You have need of endurance. Don't drift. Make every effort. We've been exhorted. But, but here's the thing that Hebrews is doing that takes us way beyond what that song is promising. It's saying that, that all of that effort, all of that applying of the means of grace is in order to fix our gaze on the one who has completed the race for us. And the one who is the great shepherd of the sheep who is with us, equipping us with everything that we need for an enduring faith, which is the means by which we hold on to him, so that in fact, our holding on to him 
is actually just an expression of him holding on to us. Yes, we're to, to hold on and to keep going. But listen to these words of the song that we're going to close with in a moment. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold, he must hold me fast. He will hold me fast, for my Saviour loves me so. He will hold me fast. Jesus, uh, in Matthew 11, we're told in Hebrews to hold on to the words of Jesus. Uh, here are some words of Jesus that are worth holding on to. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion, trying to fix yourself, trying to push through, make it to the end? Jesus says, come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. The promise of the Lord Jesus is, is that we're invited to tuck in under him. His yoke, his burden is easy and it is light because he is the one who has shouldered the burden to open the way to God. And he is the one who is shouldering the burden even now, equipping with you with the faith to hold on to him as he takes you safely home. Those membership commitments. I love how saturated in grace, a reminder. That's how he finishes in verse 25. Grace be with all of you. That is the only hope for making it to the end. It is the grace gift of the Lord Jesus from start to finish. And the commitment that uh, some folks were making just now. Will you endeavor to depend upon divine grace? Walk in God's ways. And pursue the glory of God in the practice of the faith. It is saturated in grace, isn't it? It's not a weighty thing where we feel like this is too much of a burden and I don't know how long I can shoulder it for. And here's the clincher for me is the response. The response to that is, I will, God being my helper. And we have such a washed out version of what it means for God to be our helper. We think of helper, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the dad saying to the, to the toddler, please would you, you know, would you come and be daddy's little helper? I'm doing this thing in the, in the workshop and would you come and just be my helper? You know, they're not really helping there. It's more for the training of the child and the togetherness, right? But God being our helper is a position of strength. God being our helper means he is supplying something. Somebody's only a helper if they're supplying something that you do not have in yourself. I will, God being my helper, I don't have it in me, out, in, in and of myself. But because he is my helper, I now do have it in me to make it to the end. That's the promise. That is why Jesus gets the glory. Uh, verse 21, would he equip you with everything good? You may do his will, working as it is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To whom be the glory forever and ever. He gets the glory because he does it all. It all falls on him. And he has endured on your behalf if your faith is in him. I'm going to ask us to pray together as we finish the words of verse 20 and 21. And I wonder if we could just pray it out loud. Whatever version of the Bible you have with you, I think most of us have church Bibles or ESVs, but it doesn't matter. Just read out loud whatever your version is, and I hope that we can you know, pray this with some volume. 
pray it like we mean it. Pray it like we're leaning on God to answer this prayer for us. Just verse 20 and 21. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory 